Hello again, church family. I'm Russ Adams, and it is uh, my privilege to study God's Word with you today as we conclude our six-month study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Father God, thank you for the wonderful record of your son's earthly ministry we have in the Gospels. As we have learned already in this study, and will again today, uh, we can only understand your word if you open our hearts to its truth. So open our hearts now, Father. Forgive us for often letting Bible study become just learning things and not coming to know you more fully and being transformed a bit more into the likeness of your Son. So bless this time of study in that way, to your glory and to our preparation to serve you. And we ask it in the name of your Son and our Lord. Amen. Well, let's take a quick look back through the whole book as we begin this study today. In many ways, Luke's gospel is a record of transitions. As the gospel opens, uh, Dr. Luke tells us that his intent is to provide an orderly account of all the things concerning Jesus that had been handed down to him by those who had witnessed them firsthand. After four long centuries of silence, God transitioned to the next phase of his prophetic plan by sending his son to us, born of the Virgin Mary in that stable in Bethlehem. And the first part of Luke's gospel records Jesus' ministry in Galilee, in which he validated his claim to be the Messiah with powerful and authoritative teaching, signs, and miracles. Throughout, Luke places a very strong emphasis on Jesus' love for the common man and woman. The next transition occurs when Jesus, in Luke 9.51, resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, of course, Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times before. But this time, a clear transition is meant. Jesus knows that the time has come to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the work he was sent to do, to redeem us according to the plan decided in the eternal counsel of God before the world was made. Along the way, opposition rises and confrontations with the religious leaders sharpen. When Jesus presents himself in Jerusalem as the Messiah of Israel, he is accepted enthusiastically by the people. But that acceptance is based on a misunderstanding of what his Messiahship means. And before the week is out, that acceptance has turned into rejection. Jesus is arrested and subject to a series of sham trials. These trials are significant because of what they represent. The only perfect man who ever lived was wrongly convicted and sentenced to death by both the Jewish and the Roman justice systems, the very two systems that are the foundation of our legal systems to this day. So in essence, the world system evaluated Jesus and rejected him. Two weeks ago, uh, we studied the events of the crucifixion in some detail. As horrible as crucifixion was physically, the most dreadful moment of all was surely when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that terrible moment, the sinless one took on our sins 
and endured the wrath of God in our place. For the first time since eternity passed, the fellowship of Father and Son was interrupted. Later, though, another cry was heard from the cross. A loud, it is finished, paid in full. The work was complete. And Luke uses a very specific term to record that Jesus then voluntarily gave up his spirit, just as he had said he would do. Luke then gives us one of the most detailed records of the burial of Jesus. So last week, we arrived at uh, probably the most significant transition of all. Sin had been defeated on the cross, and on Easter morning, sin's sting, death, was defeated as well. In the early morning hours, a group of women went to the tomb to finish preparing the body of Jesus. So let's uh, open our Bibles now to Luke chapter 24. We're going to back up a bit before we move into the uh, lesson text for today. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn... They came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So they entered the tomb and they didn't find the body of Jesus, and they were perplexed. I really like that word. Here is where the transition in their understanding begins. Go back and look at verses 6 and 7. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Jesus had told them on many occasions specifically what was going to happen. Uh, Let's turn back just a bit to Luke chapter 9, verse 22, and that's a good example of it. Let's see, here we are. Luke 9, 22. I'll back up a verse to 21. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So that's a great example of how specific this uh, uh, teaching of Jesus was. He told his disciples this constantly. Yet, in the context of their understanding of what the Messiah would come to do, this never made any sense to them. Now, in verse 8, it says that the women remembered his words. 
So they remembered them in a, in a very clear way. Jesus had meant exactly what he had said, and he was alive again. Now, it was difficult for all the disciples to arrive at this conclusion. Let's go on to verses 9 through 12. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at that which had happened. So the words that the women brought to the apostles says uh, these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Now Peter and uh, John, we we know from a parallel account, uh, went to the tomb to check out the story. And sure enough, things were exactly as the women had said. But a key point was that they did not see Jesus himself. The Emmaus disciples made this point in chapter 24, verse 24, reflecting that uh, that, that was being said among the disciples. So I'm going to look up to uh, chap- chapter 24, verse 24, and it says, And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now it should be noted back in verse 12 that uh, Peter went away to his home marveling at that which had happened. Uh, This marveling uh, wasn't with understanding. Uh, I believe this marveling was with the same perplexity the women had experienced. So last week's focal passage was on the experience of those uh, two small-d disciples, if you will, from Emmaus, who were traveling home and the encounter they had with the risen Jesus. During this long walk, Jesus, who was not recognized by them, had chided them for not understanding the things that they had witnessed and the things that they had heard about that day. And Jesus then took them on a guided tour of Scripture. Let's read Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them these things concerning himself in all the scriptures. When at last Jesus revealed himself to them and vanished from their sight, the thing that had impressed them the most was the way that he had opened their hearts to the meaning of the scriptures concerning him. And that's the pattern of the transition taking place in all of his disciples in today's lesson. The Emmaus disciples rushed back to Jerusalem, despite the late hour, to tell their news. Uh, We read in in, uh, verses 33 through 35, And they arose that very hour, and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen, and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experience on the road, 
and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. So when they arrived, there were others bringing in accounts of the resurrection actually having happened and how at some point during the day Jesus had appeared to Peter. And the Emmaus disciples added their report to this. Uh, But as the parallel account in Mark tersely concludes, they didn't believe them either. And that is the perfect setup for what happens in today's passage. Verses 36 through 39 in Luke 24 read, And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus himself is in their midst, and they don't know what to make of it. Now, I'm not inclined to be too hard on them. This is a lot to process, even if they are recalling what he told them would happen. And he did materialize in a closed room. So no wonder they were thinking that this might be the disembodied spirit of Jesus. And neither is Jesus hard on them. He shows them his hands and his feet, and he invites them to come and touch him to satisfy themselves that he is really bodily there. Now, it's not recorded in Scripture that anyone took him up on this offer. And so Jesus does something that is absolutely genius. Verses 41 through 43. And why they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their sight. Now this is something no disembodied spirit does. I wonder how many times when they were together had they heard Jesus ask this very question, Do you have anything to eat? I wonder how many meals they had shared and enjoyed together. Now in verse 41, we're told that because of their doubt, they were unable to bring themselves to believe because the joy would be too great. So already there's a transition taking place. Uh, Fear is being replaced with caution. Uh, But at this, the eating of the fish in front of them, uh, the joy becomes very real. Uh, Jesus' presence with them bodily isn't questioned again by anyone present. Now, the title of today's lesson is Commissions. So as the disciples are transitioning from unbelief to doubt to belief, Jesus is about to bring about a great transition, the inauguration of the church age. Terrified disciples, hiding behind locked doors, are about to be equipped and commissioned to be proclaimers of the good news. Let's continue reading in verses 44 through 47. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So just as he had with the Emmaus disciples, uh, Jesus explains how the scriptures are all about him. Uh, when he mentioned the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, uh, he was actually mentioning the three divisions of scripture in the Old Testament. Of course, you had the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, and that was referred to as the law. And then there was a section known as the prophets, and that's where most of the prophetic books are located. And then there's a third section that was called the writings, and that uh, was sort of everything else gathered together, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, the wisdom books, uh, so forth. Uh, but in saying that, he was saying everything in the Old Testament was written about me, and he walked them through that and explained that in detail. So there are some important things to note about that. In verse 44, Jesus says that all things in Scripture about him must be fulfilled. And I thought it was interesting that it didn't say have been fulfilled. There is more to come. Just as surely and accurately as the prophecies concerning Jesus to this point had been fulfilled, any remaining prophecies will be just as surely and accurately fulfilled at the proper time. Verse 45 is critically important. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We can understand the scriptures only if God opens our minds to do so. And we know that that is the Holy Spirit's work. In verses 46 and 47, Jesus explains the point of it all. That repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Throughout Luke's gospel, the extension of the message to the Gentiles has always been a feature, and it is absolutely clear here. The message of salvation is for everyone. Verse 47 ends with a phrase that brings this mission from the concept uh, to its reality, beginning from Jerusalem, starting right here in Jerusalem. So how is that going to happen the disciples might have been wondering. Let's read verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in response to what they were thinking, who's going to be doing this proclaiming? Jesus says, you are. You are the witnesses of these things. And lest you be concerned that you must somehow find in yourselves what it will take to be proclaimers, there's more good news. Jesus will send from the Father the promised Helper, the Holy Spirit, and He will equip and empower and guide and encourage with supernatural power. Let's continue. The last verses in the gospel are verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. 
And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So Luke's gospel concludes with the ascension. There has been a very great transition, a transformation in these disciples. Once fearful, they are now joyful and confident, and they're praising God in the temple publicly, waiting for their empowerment and ready to take the good news from Jerusalem to all the nations. Now, in these closing verses, Luke has actually telescoped a lot of what happened immediately after the resurrection. When we started this study six months ago, uh, we noted that Luke's gospel is actually volume one of a two-volume set prepared for his recipient, Theophilus. The second volume is the book of Acts. Let's take a look at the first few verses of Acts, which will give us a little bit more detail about these uh, days after the resurrection. All right, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 in Acts chapter 1, and you'll see how there's a lot more detail presented here. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So that's how the book of Acts opens, giving us a little bit more detail about uh, uh, what had happened in that uh, period right after the resurrection. As an example, in verse 3, we learn that Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection to his ascension. It was during that time that the teaching in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47, took place. So that's enough time for that teaching to be very thorough. The Great Commission, 
which is the subject of the lesson today, is found in every gospel account. And it's also repeated in Acts 1, verse 8. One of my commentaries pointed this out, along with an observation that there is no reason to assume that they all refer to the same moment. The Great Commission may have been frequently repeated. So how long after the ascension did the disciples have to wait until the promised Holy Spirit was sent to them? Well, it turns out not very long. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost. That's something we know. And Pentecost was a feast that was held exactly 50 days after the Passover. So Jesus was sacrificed on the Passover, died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And then we're told that for 40 days after his resurrection, uh, he was with the disciples. So the difference between that period and the 50 days to Pentecost uh, leaves us with about a week that they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. When the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, we find the disciples boldly proclaiming the gospel with such supernatural power that the people marveled. And so the fulfillment of the Great Commission began. That last great transition involves us today. The book of Acts records how the message of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone, was first proclaimed beginning in Jerusalem and expanded outward to the ends of the earth. Acts is sometimes called the unfinished book, and we're the latest chapter in it. So may we like those disciples, equipped with understanding of the scriptures and clothed with power from on high, be bold proclaimers of the good news of our resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Father, we have heard today the great commission you have given to us. Help us to be obedient to that commission. Equip us with a greater love for and understanding of your word as we study it together. Help us to encourage one another to be bold proclaimers of the good news of salvation in your Son and our Lord. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we ask that you would use it to your glory. In Christ's name, we ask it. Amen. Well, I always like to encourage my class to read ahead and prepare for the next lesson. And next week, we're going to begin a new quarter, and we will be studying something uh, quite different. We're going to return to the Old Testament, and we're going to be studying two books in the category of wisdom literature, the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. Uh, these two books consider very deep questions, and the studies are going to be challenging and rewarding. And I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are as well. So to read ahead in preparation for next week's lesson, uh, read Job chapters 1 and 2. Thank you very much for listening. Have a blessed week.